During the Spanish colonial period, in the 1700s, the Spanish were very interested in pigeonholing people according to their racial background. This is Susan Vogel. And the Spanish in Spain were fascinated about all the different racial combinations in New Spain. New Spain was what the Spanish were calling Mexico at the time. So they commissioned artists in the New World to create these Costa paintings. Often these consisted of 16 separate paintings depicting 16 different racial combinations and the offspring that they produced. The most well-known set are these, and these are by Miguel Cabrera, who was an artist from Oaxaca, considered one of the greatest painters of, um, of New Spain. He was commissioned to create religious artwork by the Catholic Church and the social elite. He painted these large scrolls. Some of them are life-size. They were intended to be a manual to explain to people their racial hierarchy and social ranking. They had a caste system, so it was a hierarchy of where you stood socially, politically, economically, job-wise, everything. And it went from the very highest, of course, were the people born in Spain. And then it went down from there. And it got really awful the lower you went. Here's Luis Lopez. Essentially, um, as Susan mentioned, so if you were, you know, Spanish from Spain, you have the top spot from there. Um, you could have a mix with they would identify as like castizo, right? Um, but typically, I believe if you went... Uh, there there's really isn't a way to go up the chart, right? Um, well, if, if you have uh, a castizo, which is like a mestizo in a Spanish mix, you can kind of get back to whiteness, if you will. But anything lower down the, down that chart, you're stuck. There's, there's nothing you can do. And so um, it's extremely unfortunate. But, yeah, based on the color of your skin and, and what, you're, what, they, what they identified as racial mixes, uh, predetermine what your life was going to be and uh, and yeah I mean this society was based off of this system and, and we still see it today in the sense of uh, how racism plays out um, even in this country as well I'm Ross Chambliss. This is Nuevas Voces, Part 6, and in this episode we're talking about how Mexican art reveals much of the racist legacy left behind by the Spanish. During the colonial period, the conversion of Mesoamericans to Catholicism also played a role in the caste system. Pope Paul III, um, in 1537, promulgated a document that stated that the Indians were to, were rational beings and should be brought peacefully to the faith. So one thing that happens in Mexico is that rather than decimating, just wiping out the native populations, which had happened in other areas, the conquerors were told to allow people to be to baptize people, and they allowed them to participate in society. So some people feel that that was a wonderful thing because it gave people a role, albeit a very low one, which we'll see in the Costa paintings. But some, when I've interviewed people, um, one of the diplomats I interviewed said that was a huge, huge factor in shaping Mexico's history as a country of mestizos and as a country where everybody can participate in the society. But indigenous peoples didn't just want to go along with European domination and their biblical stories about Christ and the Virgin Mary. A new story needed to be told to bring the native peoples along. After the conquest, there were enough uh, rebellions that 
the really the Aztecs didn't stay quiet. There was a war, and um, the the church, I guess, uh, the, the Catholic Church, the, the conquistadors were they were they were worried that how they would convince this. I mean, that's, at least that's how I see it. So they, you know, with the respect of the Catholic people, they created this story that um, this woman had appeared to this Indian and this woman represented Virgin Mary. When the Indian uh, uh, Juan Diego went back to the church and explained to the priests what he had seen, it was a revelation of the true church to manifest uh, to the Indians. Up until then, the Virgin Mary appeared in old European paintings as a white, finely featured woman. But the Virgin Mary that supposedly appeared in Mexico City looked like a native woman. Uh, it's dark skin, indigenous features. The elements of her uh, outfits are all based on the cosmovision. The moon, the sun, the stars, um, everything. Cosmovision, of course, was the worldview of the Aztecs held before Christianity was imposed on them. So she was named Guadalupe. Nowadays, the Virgin of Guadalupe is the most honored figure in Mexico. In Mexico City, we have a specific cathedral for her, and millions, millions of people, uh, pilgrims, come to see this image every year. And what is surprisingly is that the majority of the pilgrims are indigenous people. So when you think of how the Aztecs had everything taken away from them, their worldview was squashed, their gods were defeated. They had this need to embrace to something. And this image was created, and they embraced on this Tonatzin. Tonatzin was the name of the Aztec Mother Earth God from before. Now called Virgen de Guadalupe, the Virgin of Guadalupe, and they embrace on that. That's our mother. She's taking care of us. And if, if Catholicism is true, well, there is Virgin Mary appearing in the in the skin color, which is her color. Growing up in a Catholic household, like this definitely resonates with me. You know, um, to me, everything from you know the color of, of of her outfit, right? Like the green is how we see the Virgin de Guadalupe. And to me, right away, I connect that I connect that to the feathered serpents around Coatlique, right? That green, you know, serpent. Um, you know, full of uh, quetzal feathers, right? And so I think even if the name is different, even if the ideology is different, you're going to recognize your mom when you see her. And so I think the Catholic Church was extremely smart. And, and whether they didn't speak Spanish, you know, these people didn't speak Spanish or not, they recognized their mother. And so it kind of got them to, to submit, if you will, uh, and kind of give in like, okay, you know what? If our mom is telling us that this is the way, then let's go ahead. Like she knows best. The art of the colonial era was all about teaching people Catholicism. And the Spanish had the indigenous craftsmen and artists take their materials like feathers and mother of pearl and use these in Catholic art. So we see a lot of um, indigenous materials and designs and patterns being transferred into Catholic art. Um, And what was, and so there's this heavy, heavy, influence and effort to make get people to be loyal Catholics, religious Catholics, and also to 
stay within the bounds of their class, the class system that was extremely rigid. So we see the cost of paintings, we see the religious art, and it's to keep people in their places. For what purpose? Basically, this is fueling a huge, huge trade war in Europe. So thanks to the Americas, Europe was able to su succeed Asia as the biggest trade partner in the world. Thanks to all of these people who are act who are faithful Catholics now and are performing in this basically, um, well, it's called the encomienda system, where they are serfs and they are producing products and mining and all these things for the Spanish. All these raw materials are going to Europe, and Europe has now become the biggest trade source in the world. Mm. So this is a huge, huge economic project. Another image that touches raw nerves of race relations in Mexico and Latin America is El Suplicio de Cuauhtémoc, painted in 1893. It is really, really big. And it was painted for the Universal Columbus Exhibition held in Chicago in 1893, celebrating 400 years since Columbus came to the Americas. So it's based on the torture of Cuauhtémoc and his cousin by the Spanish. This painting is about 10 feet wide by 8 feet tall, and it was painted as part of a celebration of Spanish dominance of the Americas. And what would that be like in 1893, people looking at this painting in 1893? It seems very political, but I think it might have appealed to a sense at the time of intrigue about Native topics. So I will ask you guys what it means to you when you see this. Anger. <laughs> um, just because, like as I mentioned before, both, both of these cultures are a part of who I am. And so, uh, you know, there's that side of me that's like they're burning the feet of, an, you know, an, an indigenous person. Um, for what reason, you know? Um, I, I just don't see that kind of torture being necessary in, in any way. I mean... It's kind of a hard image to see just because uh, I can only imagine the pain. I mean, there's the flame right up to his, like right under his feet, him and his cousin. And this is the king. And so uh, another thing that comes to mind, I know typically people will think when the Spanish came, they completely took over these civilizations. There's already pre pre-existing hierarchies. So all they have to do is control the king and they control the rest of the system. And so that's something else that comes to mind is, is that essentially what they're doing. They're breaking down the king to take over. Uh, something really important uh, that I find really amazing in this painting is uh, the artist was able to produce communication through the eyes. I actually read an article about this. When you look at the painting, uh, look at the eyes of every character in the paint. Um, Cuauhtémoc, the, the way he's looking at Cortés, he's not giving up. The eyes of the cousin of Cuauhtémoc sitting on the uh, right side, really asking Cuauhtémoc, just, just tell them, just tell them so they don't kill you. But Cuauhtémoc is challenging. The way he's looking at everyone here, he's challenging. And he said, 
And he's actually said that I, if you think that by doing that, I'm giving up the last part because he was the last emperor. Uh, the last part of what it meant to give up his, his kingdom, his empire, is not going to happen. And everybody else in the room is looking at him with a surprise face of, what is wrong with this guy that is not even acting to the fact that we're burning his feet? I find that extremely powerful. Something else that I find powerful in this, in this uh, painting is the features of Gautemoc and his cousin. His skin is not dark, it's almost white. And this was something that was predominant during the art of colonialism. Um, European artists were making sure that they will paint indigenous people with fan features because they considered indigenous people unattractive. So the image that they wanted to send to Europe is that they are really nice people and we're gonna make it look a little bit more attractive. And we fall into this you know, aspect of racism and not recognizing who we are. This is something that we are faced still on in Latin America. Mm. The darker you are, the less opportunities you have. The more indigenous features you have, mm, mm. you know, you are not very attractive. And this is a reality. So the, the, these factors I find very interesting in this painting. Mm. Mm. In the, co in the Costa paintings, the people who are the darkest, the children of the people who are the darkest, are actually called animals. They're called lobos. Some of them are called like going back, like jumping, jumping backward. Hmm. So it's it's pretty horrendous. Wow. Earlier we we talked about this uh, the the caste system and sort of the the sort of established hierarchy of. Of, of people in, in that society imposed by the Spanish. How much to, to what degree does that, do, do those ideas persist now uh, in Mexican culture? Oh, they're, they're very much alive. Um, for example, the, these ideas have been internalized uh, and you'll hear things um, like, for example, growing up someone would say, oh, tienes cara de indio, right? You have the face of an Indian and that's supposed to be an insult. Right or in Nopal en la frente, you have the cactus on your forehead. That's how we can tell how how Mexican or indigenous you are, right? And so that that's meant to hurt. Um, I know for me personally, recently we've reclaimed those things. Yeah, my family's from Zacatecas, Mexico. We eat lots of cactus. It started as survival. Now it's a, tradi a tradition. And my son's middle name is Nepalzi, which is little cactus, right? And so we've taken that term that was meant to be offensive, and we've kind of reclaimed it, but at its root, it, it comes from these, this caste system, this idea of the more indigenous you look, the darker you look, the less value you have in society. Mm. Wow. There was an ad recently, I think maybe when Luis was with Artes, there was an ad for Aeromexico for flight attendants, and it said um, something like Blanco como de Polanco. So it was basically... It was saying that they wanted to hire people who were white and were like from the fancy neighborhood of Mexico City. Yeah. <laughs> I can just give you an example in my own family. Uh, uh, my grandfather was, my father was probably about a quarter uh, Indian Aztec. And my grandfather, you could even see it 
more uh, dark skin, his features. Um, my grand, he married to a very blonde, blue-eyed woman. And my mother's family is mostly European. There is no trace of indigenous um, uh, background. I grew up in a family with both sides. My grandfather defending his uh, indigenous Nahuatl language, although he, it was prohibited for him to, sp to speak the language when he was little. And on my mother's side, everybody looks white, you know, light skin, uh, eye color. And when I was dating a guy from Oaxaca, my mom's family was very concerned. They said, we have to improve our race. Tenemos que mejorar nuestra raza. When I started dating my husband, it was an opportunity. It was a great thing that I was marrying a, a, a gringo, an American. And it, it was really strong. I mean, I lived it with my own family. In my own family, you know, 450 years later. <laughs> wow. So just help me understand that. So the idea that you are, are marrying a, uh, a, a white person uh, is somehow advancing you, advancing the family? That's, that's the idea? I, I have very attractive children <laughs> <laughs> because they don't look like me. They look more like their dad. <laughs> I, I have been called to be the babysitter of my children. Oh. Really? So you uh, you see that what is the mental model that we establish here as as in terms of ethnicities and race? I really dislike the word race. When we think about race, we are one human race. One, that's it. <laughs> we are different ethnicities, mm. but it's one race. Mm -hmm. There's no such a thing. And we have taken the political right to use the word race to this to establish these powerful distinctions in terms of uh, economics and politics and social disabilities uh, or abilities. And this is very real in Mexico, and I would say most in Latin America. I think that example, I actually heard someone say that a few weeks ago, mejorar la raza. And uh, it, it really gets me going because they've internalized you know, this, this self-hatred sometimes for themselves. But that idea of improving the race ties directly to the caste system because they're moving back up that chart right and the and the more white you you have in your family the, the higher up you can go and hopefully improve your condition improve your your quality of life is kind of how they've internalized that let me just stop the tape for a second let me tell you that I had no idea that our discussion of these paintings from centuries ago would cause such a visceral emotional response from everybody. I had no idea how much these racist, European-introduced ideas of white supremacy that are embodied in these paintings still linger in our modern world and afflict people of Mexican descent today. Okay, I just needed to say that. Back to the discussion. And you can look at the television. You can look at the ads in in magazines in Mexico. You can look at movies, and most of the high class, most of the people, the main characters are going to be look just like me, white, blonde hair. You're, you look very European, and um, and then in often the people that are uh, household help or gardeners are going to be indigenous. 
And there's all kinds of caricatures that come with them and, you know, not very intelligent and doing silly things. And it's it's very ingrained in society in Mexico. I would argue even here as well. Yeah. Um, my experience, I grew up in the California public school system, moved to Utah for my senior year. And, and growing up, I would hear things like, oh, you could be a construction worker. Oh, if you work hard, you can own your own landscape company. And it's like, mm-hmm. that's not really helping me. <laughs> you know, if anything, you're just kind of reinforcing the idea that um, my, my brownness, my indigeneity is only good for physical labor. Right. And so earlier, uh, especially after high school, I did take those labor jobs to get by. But that's especially why I think education is, is so important and why uh, in my family, we push so hard for it. We've never really had access to it. I'm first-generation college graduate, first-generation to work in an office environment, right? Most of my family has worked labor their whole lives. And all the way up to my abuelito, who was a bracero, uh, we've worked the land, you know? So uh, I definitely still connect myself to the land, and I still have pride in, in knowing how to, how to work it and how to, you know, work with my maize and make my own tortillas at home and things like that. Um, but, yeah, we constantly fight to break these stereotypes that exist today. I think for me as an immigrant in this, in terms of, of, of this uh, class society, you know, I came here because I married a white American, <laughs> not because I came as an immigrant and not to diminish that idea, but I have been said, did you marry because of the papers? Did um, you are Mexican, but you look different, you act different than those all those Mexicans. I have been asked uh, by people, how do you know all this stuff? Is there universities in Mexico? You have to be confronted just because the way you look based on these charts. Is it really an opportunity or did you take advantage of it or how did you make it there? <laughs> And these are questions you're getting from from here, from people of the predominant. Even from culture. Mexicans, even yeah. uh, oh. from everybody. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm fortunately going to be going back to Mexico uh, in December to visit uh, my family. A cousin of mine's getting married. Shout out to Bernardo. Uh, we'll see him in December. Uh, but even back 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 home, I call it home still. Um, you know, Luis works in, in higher ed. Ooh, and you'll get some say, "Oh, you think you're better off now? Mm-hmm. You think you're better than us, mm-hmm. right?" It's, it's my family. These are my, you know, my primos hermanos, my first cousins, uh, who sometimes will, will still kind of critique me based off of these systems. Mm-hmm. And where maybe they, where they see themselves on this chart as well. Wow. I think one of the things we all face here in the U.S., if I mean, my daughter is half Mexican, is raising our kids to be proud to be Mexicanos and to identify. And it's, it's a real struggle. It's not going to happen naturally. I mean, I w- had to work really hard to um, make my daughter proud to be Mexicana because she can pass for I mean she sometimes she looks Mexicana and sometimes she doesn't it depends on how she dyes her hair and you know puts on her makeup but um, it, I had to fortunately I had the resources to take her to Mexico and spend summers with her cousins and to bring her abuelita from Mexico to spend a lot of time with us where like Fanny she was um, assumed to be the nanny <laughs> rather than the grandma but it's a struggle here in the U.S. to raise our kids to be proud to be Mexicanos. And part of what we do, um, all of us in Artes de Mexico in Utah, is try to, to do that, try to help people set, get a sense of pride. And Luis has, has done this. He's worked in gang prevention. 
in the school system. And part of what he does, and of course, you know, he can say better than I, is to really show people that they should be proud of this great heritage and and um, the history. And um, I think it he, he can talk more about what effect it has to really feel proud of being of both cultures. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so my experience with gang prevention, I actually did that out in Provo School District um, with uh, Antonio Castillo and Koki Klein, uh, Kirino Valladolid as well. Um, and one of the main things that we focused on was empowering students through their culture, right? We found that when students know who they are and are proud of who they are, the chances of someone else and recruiting them into, into their gang is less likely because they're going to show up with, hey, we got love for you. We're going to look out for you. You don't got to worry about anything. But what happens when those, those needs are already fulfilled by their own culture, by their own family? Then, oh, I don't need that. I know who I am. And then when they f- face other challenges in their life, they're much more resilient and persistent, right? And so that's something that I was fortunate. I grew up in Southern California. Um, luckily, you know, I, I wasn't in a gang-infested neighborhood, but we would always, we joke, we were hood adjacent, right? Like we saw it across the street or we saw it when we visited family. Um, but my parents were always there, and my father especially always pushed the Mexican narrative of history. He would always push culture, be proud, wear your huaraches, you know, uh, whereas I had family members who maybe were ashamed. Mm-hmm. And so by the time I hit my teen years, I knew who I was. I knew I was very Mexicano. I later on also latched onto the Chicano identity. But, my, you know, my culture is well-rooted, and because of that, I, you know, I think I've done well in my life, and it's allowed me to help others, I'll just say that that's really fascinating because I think that, um, I mean, I don't know a lot about gang prevention at all, but I think yeah. that the, the concept of, in fact, let's not denigrate or let's not denigrate uh, an ethnic minority's culture because the the consequence or result of that is we will have more violence and more potential for, for gangs. Um, so what, what I, I guess what I'm hearing from you is that it's actually best to in, encourage understanding or, uh, of those cultures so that... So we don't have gangs and violence. I mean, that, is that kind of the concept? I mean, I, I, I would say that's definitely correct. Um, I put it to you this way. Um, if I have limited resources, financial resources, okay, and as a Chicano or Mexican-American, I'm not fully embraced by my culture or my community in the, in the United States, right? They see me as a foreigner even though I'm from here. I go to Mexico, they don't see me as a Mexicano because I'm raised in the States. So you don't really have a home. You don't have support. You don't have money. What do you do? You survive. And if there's a group of people that's willing to offer you that support, you're going to latch onto it. That's just how it is. And so that's why for me, I definitely say, you know, culture, education is, is huge. Otherwise, you get caught up in other things. And, and at that point, you're just a product of your environment. And one thing leads to another. And the next thing you know, you're caught up, you're in jail or something like that. But um, culture is huge. I think if people know who they are, then they can, I don't know, they can push back against those those, uh, those other things that attract them to maybe live a lifestyle that is definitely dangerous for their health. Go to the Artists de Mexico in Utah website to see the images we've discussed in this episode. As always, thank you so much to our expert team, Luis Lopez, Fanny Blauer, and Susan Vogel for offering their diverse views on some very sensitive topics. This podcast is made possible by a grant from Utah Humanities. Music in this episode comes from Leo Sanchez, Frida Lopez, Gustavo Santo Olaya, Elliot Goldenthal, and the Latin Playboys. Thanks to KCPW, Salt Lake Public Radio for letting us use their studios. I'm Ross Chambliss.
Stop. 